Hello, and welcome to Holly History, where we discuss what you want to hear. Bringing you the story and answering your questions. No fake news, no alternative facts. Just history, all the time. Hello and welcome to Holly History. We discussed what you want to hear. Mr. D here again. Today we're going to be discussing something a little bit different. I want to do a different episode. Uh, something that you know isn't a short because we're putting out so many shorts here in this uh, in this you know uh, quarantine time. And I wanted to do something different and about a book that I just read called The Polar Expedition, The Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia, 1918 to 1919 by James Carl Nelson. And Nelson did a magnificent job with this book. It's a, it's a heavy, heavy work that probably took a lot of research to do, and it was a fantastic read. So I want to share this with you today because it's a little known story about American history, one of those little slices that we don't pay much attention to. But this book tells the story of the 339th Infantry Regiment and others who fought in Russia in the last stages of World War I, and even after the war is officially over. Now, to kind of set up what World War I looks like here, you've got the war beginning in 1914, and the United States stays neutral for much of it. Now, that doesn't mean they're not supplying the Allied powers. The Allied powers being Britain, France, Russia, Italy, and some other minor players, and Serbia. How can I forget them? Um, and World War One breaks out because Europe is really in this just powder keg mode, and there's a ton of just alliances, and uh, it kind of gets to, you know I could go on the, for this <laughs> about this forever, but I don't want to bore you too much with that. I'm just trying to give you the base setup. So basically, Europe is in a, is total war, uh, millions of people dying. It's absolutely awful. And the United States stays neutral, although it clearly is leaning towards the Allied side of Britain, France, Russia. Serbia, Italy, those powers. The other side of the central powers, and that is Germany, Austria-Hungary, Bulgaria, and the Ottoman Empire. But really, it's really, really just Germany. Uh, the other powers there are very weak. Um, the Turks are putting up as much of a fight as they can. The Austro-Hungarians are very weak. So Germany's kind of in the middle here. But Germany manages to knock out one country in particular. Uh, they'll knock out others, including Bulgaria, and nearly France and Italy, but on the Eastern Front, Germans are fighting Russians, and it is awful, absolutely horrific fighting. And in fact, the war gets so bad in Russia, this is where you might be able to pick up your history, that a revolution begins. And the Germans actually send back a guy by the name of Vladimir Lenin, who will pick up this revolution that's kind of in the midst of being, and carry that revolution to making Russia into the Soviet Union during World War One. It's one of the biggest impacts of the First World War is that we get the Soviet Union come out of the First World War. And they will sign a separate peace with the Germans, and Russia will actually withdraw from the war in 1917. In the spring of 1917, when this revolution kind of picks up in Russia, and the Tsar is overthrown, removed, later assassinated by the Bolsheviks. In 1917, as this is all going to happen, the United States comes into the war and joins. So the Allies lose Russia on one front, but they gain the United States in the other. Now I want to point out, 
the ideas that Lenin is selling and the Bolsheviks, this idea of communism and socialism, is something that the rest of the world is absolutely horrified of, especially Britain, France, the United States, even Germany is terrified of this. They're just willing to take a gamble by sending Lenin back to Russia to get them out of the war. It's more important to them to get Russia out of the war than it is for, I don't know, his ideas to spread back to Germany, which they kind of do. Because communism socialism does call for a widespread revolution of workers around the world to overthrow the business interests, to overthrow the government, and redistribute the wealth, and make a more fair and equal society. They're very, you know, Marx and Engels are very clear about that in the Communist Manifesto. So these other countries, you know, I'll probably focus on Britain, France, and uh, America mostly here, are, don't really want that to happen. Okay, and we'll see a lot of anti-communist stuff even in the 20s in the United States. So they're faced with this. Russia is in the midst, going to enter its own kind of civil war right now, where you have two groups, the Reds, the Bolsheviks, and the Whites. The Whites are kind of hoping for some uh, a system kind of similar, and, and, and at first these two groups kind of work together to establish new government, but then it's clear that they're not going to be able to work together, and that's when the civil war ensues in 1918, 1920, throughout this time period. You're going to have the, the Whites, the Mensheviks, fighting against the Bolsheviks, who are the Reds, the Communists, and, and, and the Mensheviks, the Whites, they are the ones who, they're looking for a more democratic system, something similar akin maybe the United States with some light socialism, even like Britain, you know, kind of appeasing those groups a little bit. But the Reds will be the ones that eventually will win this conflict, and the Bolsheviks will win, making the Soviet Union to the, you know, the socialist republic that they'll become. Now, in an effort to kind of uh, for lack of a better word, stomp out this revolution before it begins. There's kind of a push among the Allied powers where Woodrow Wilson, the President of the United States, is talked into by Britain and France sending troops to this location, a northern port in Russia known as Archangel. There, there are a ton of Allied supplies and we don't want this, the Allied powers are thinking, to fall into the hands of the Germans who could push up north and grab them, especially, or the Bolsheviks, because we're not really keen into them winning the revolution anyways. And the British, however, though, and they're kind of the ones the driving force here, they have grander ideas of linking up with the this, this legion or regiment of Czech soldiers uh, who were loyal to the Tsar, were loyal to the Whites, loyal Russians to that side of the Civil War, and having them unite with some Allied forces and overthrow Lenin and the Bolsheviks. It's a grand, grand plan. Now, here's the issue, though. There's people that are on the ground in Russia, and I'm going to quote from some of the book here in just a second. And the two of the people I want to talk about are David Francis. Now, David Francis was America's ambas uh, ambassador to Russia, and he was very, very, very anti-communist, anti-red. And he had warned that in November of 1917 that um, a Bolshevik success, and I quote, this is his own words, a menace to all orderly governments, ours not accepted. And, end quote, and he wants to send American troops to provide sense, as he says in air quotes, to Russians to help stomp this out. And he claims that there will be Russians that will flock to Allied troops, British, French, American troops, to overthrow the Bolsheviks and to remove the communist um, from power in Russia and to prevent this this um, this great this great red threat that is uh, rising in Russia. And here's another quote I want to read to you. 
uh, from David Francis, the ambassador to the United States, saying, Russia's awaking from the dream of the last seven months, realizing this fallacy, Bolshevism, and the failure of Lenin's experiment in governments, to use his own words. And really, it's end quote, Francis cables this to the United States in June of 1918. Now, something big here. World War I, once you keep this in mind, is going to have an armistice November 11th, 1918. That's when the armistice will be signed between the Allied powers. Keep that in mind from the title of the book, ending in 1919 here. So, Francis will go on to send many, many cables to Woodrow Wilson, beginning to sort of talk him into this idea of sending troops just to guard supplies, no offensive operations, but at least to guard supplies, and maybe just their presence there would spark Russians into getting rid of the communists. But, we have here somebody who will be, uh, be very prophetic, and his name is Felix Cole. Felix Cole is the vice counsel, so he is an American representative um, who is the exact opposite opinion of David Francis, and a huge exact opposite opinion. He will have a long cable to uh, the ambassador on June 1st, and, Cole, and much of the story takes place of Arch- in Archangel out of this northern port where the Allies will land. So he's in a very, very significant place, and he's somebody you want to listen to probably because he's on the ground and and really paying attention to what Russians are saying and what's going on in Russia. This is a guy that you want to listen to. And he says to, to, um, to the ambassador to relay to President Wilson that, listen, and I quote, he says, intervention cannot reckon on active support from Russians. All the fight is out of Russia. End quote. Russia had been ravaged by the First World War. Huge amounts of casualties, uh, defeated by German armies a quarter or half of their size, um, hunger everywhere, the rail lines running long behind. I mean, they're, they're part of the reasons where the revolution happened in the first place. You know, these people have gone through a lot. They'll take some of the biggest casualties in World War I and they drop out of the war a year early. So that gives you an idea of how much Russia has suffered and how little some groups of people are willing to really fight, die, and bleed for this. That slogan of peace, land, and bread from Lenin <laughs> was very effective for a reason. Those things all sound pretty good if you've been through, you know, three years of just absolute bloodshed. Uh, Cole would go on to say that the average Russian supported the Bolsheviks and that an intervention by outside powers would just alienate average Russians and strain the relationship for decades to come. The idea that the Russians could remember this early intervention by the Allied powers would play a serious role, and Cole understood that we could be on the wrong side of history here. And he also wanted to point out that invasions of Russia have been tried many times. Napoleon Bonaparte's famous failed invasion um, was not successful. Uh, Napoleon came back with his tail between his legs and tons of dead soldiers once the, and this is in air quotes, General Winter set in. Um, The idea of invading Russia has been something that has been fascinating to some people, but usually ends in complete failure because the winters there are so difficult and the Russians uh, use that term general winter as they refer to the season as an individual that helps the military. So he went on to say this, and this is probably the last quote I'm going to have from Felix Cole because it's so profound and, and prophetic. And I quote, Every foreign invasion that has gone deep into Russia has been swallowed up, Cole wrote. The Germans know this and have only taken the nearest and most fruitful regions, avoiding the unproductive north. End quote. That's where Archangel is. And he goes on to quote right here. If we intervene going farther into Russia as we succeed, we shall be swallowed up ourselves. End quote. So, really, Cole, again here, 
just being totally honest and blunt with the president. The problem is Cole's words never reach the president in time before he can make his decision. Francis disagreeing chooses to send his message by mail so it will get there slower, hoping Wilson makes his decision already and will be bought into the idea before Felix Cole's words can reach him. He could have telegrammed this along with his message, but he chose to send it by snail mail from Archangel Russia. So really, Cole's words um, are some of the most important I thought of this book. So, and, and he goes on, one last quote, he said, uh, the U.S. shall have, uh, quote, the U.S. shall have sold our birthright in Russia for a massive pottage. The birthright is the future friendship and economic cooperation with a great and free democracy controlling untold riches. The pottage will be the recovery of a few thousand tons of material that we once gave to Russia after deciding we could ourselves do without them, end quote. Uh, and I just to, to put the, the cap on it, James Carl Nelson's last words here. Not winding Cole's pessimism to sway Wilson's coming decision to uh, on intervention, Francis was careful to mail Cole's passionate arguments to Washington instead of cabling them. So there you go. So would you know Felix Cole here has no real no real say in the eventual policy. The poor guy uh, gets kind of left out. So as we can see, this is entered on into by the United States in a kind of confusing way. Woodrow Wilson seems to be reluctantly sending troops, but uh, convinced by his ambassador, he does so. And there's also a lot of evidence to suggest that Woodrow Wilson was totally okay with doing this. Now, Woodrow Wilson's preaching self-determination and consent of the governed. He's preaching these ideas that peoples have the right to determine their own affairs. Uh, they should give their consent to who governs them or and how they govern them, and that people have their own right to determine how they want to be ruled. A little odd that he's then sending troops to stop a revolution of people who appear to be trying to self-determine and work their own things out and trying to get involved. Uh, in my opinion, it's kind of the United States' early forms of regime change where we go in and try to install a government that that we might, uh, we might like or think might be more friendly to us. And lots of Americans are going to get involved in this and uh, a couple hundred will die. In my opinion, it's, I see a lot of similarities to Vietnam, actually. The confusion of the policy, what's our goal here, what do we want to do, um, getting kind of dragged in by a European power, the French in Vietnam, the British here in this case. So it's very complex. Uh, the soldiers will have this continuous message of why are we here, why are we fighting here, what are we doing here, aren't we supposed to be fighting the Germans? So in my opinion, there's lots of similarities to Vietnam. Now, just because it's something similar doesn't mean it's the same, but you know, similar to Vietnam, we're not listening to Felix Cole here. We're not listening to other people. Wilson, you know, is listening to Francis, and he likes the idea of a pro, uh, I mean, excuse me, a non-communist government there in Russia himself. So he's not duped into this by his ambassador, David Francis. Uh, he just chooses not to listen to people like Felix Cole, ignoring the situation on the ground, ignoring logic of you know, invading Russia with such a small force. So, and again, like I said, the troops are constantly concerned with the idea of why am I here? Why are we not fighting in Europe? Why are we not fighting the Germans? Um, they'll arrive after the Spanish avian flu has kind of already hit. Many of the troops going there from all armies will be extremely sick. They won't be supplied well. There's this consistent theme of the soldiers who fight in northern Russia uh, being outnumbered, undersupplied, and not even given the basic necessities to wage any kind of significant campaign in northern Russia, some of the coldest areas is where Archangel is. So not only that, you're sending men to go fight for something they don't fully understand. 
you're going to go fight and die for a cause that is, is completely foreign to you when it seems like you should be helping on the Western Front and, you know, ending this great war that has been waged for four years and nobody's ever seen anything like it before. Instead, you're in northern Russia freezing your tail off. Um, so the British change American plans. Uh, all these American troops will technically be under high British command. A lot of the American officers, especially the commander in particular, is a colonel. He's very passive. He defers to the British on, on numerous occasions. And the British are kind of the ones driving the main policy here. And they kind of change this, you know, sort of just guarding supplies uh, very quickly into we're going to push into Russia. We're going to fight into frigid conditions. And honestly, they'll have great success early on. Um, the Reds or the Bolos, as short for Bolshevik, as the troops called them, were kind of disjointed, not well united early on in the going. And even though they're outnumbered, the British troops, which are made of Scots, Canadians even, um, Canadians have lots of artillery there, and other groups uh, will push very deep into northern Russia. The problem is, as they do this in the spring and in in, in through the fall of 1918, November of 1918 hits, the supplies get short, the numbers wear thin, the bodies pile up, and general winter hits, the first snowfall in late October of 1918. What's worse is the troops, as the snow is falling, hear whispers of an armistice on the Western Front. The war is ending there. On November 11th, that comes true. The fighting has stopped between all powers. And here are these American troops, British troops, and some French troops in northern Russia still fighting an enemy. Why are we here? Now, small mutinies actually break out, um, mostly among the French troops. That's because even as early as 1917, the French army is dealing with all kinds of mutinies. Not mutinies in where they're actually overthrowing their officer or killing anyone or doing you know, really awful. Just, listen, I'm not going to attack. I'll sit here, I'll defend France, but I'm not going to attack. And that's kind of a lot of what you see among the French troops, the British troops, and the American troops in northern Russia. These guys aren't doing anything too drastic that is worthy of execution, but, you know, they're refusing to do certain things, certain little things. You know, they're still loyal troops, still fighting, they'll do their job, but they're starting to understand, I'm here on, for, uh, I'm here not for such a good, you know, not for a great reason, but I'll still do my job while I'm here, but I'm not doing that. You know, things like, listen, if I'm going to go over the top and do this, my officer, you got to come with me. You know, that kind of thing. So uh, there's just way too few of numbers on the U.S. I mean, when I'm reading this stuff in the book, you know, uh, Nelson's very clear to talk about, you know, we're not talking about regiments, really. We're not even talking about, um, any, you know, regiments, divisions, corps. We're talking about platoons, companies of men fighting against hundreds and thousands of Bolsheviks and Reds. And uh, there's some Russians fighting with them, but there just is not enough men to get this job done. And it's amazing how well they perform. And the Bolos will even, you know, there's writings and communications of Bolos saying, I wonder how many they have. And they're shocked when they do capture American troops and they're like, we thought there was more of you. So really, these overwhelming numbers begin to drive the Allies back after their initial push. The Allied attack is kind of like a wave. It pushes south into Russia. Um, they'll never meet up with that huge Czech legion. The Russians will never really arise to help the Allies in overwhelming support to overthrow the Bolsheviks. And that wave will push deep into uh, northern Russia and then recede as 1919 rolls around, as the Bolsheviks have more support, they get more troops there. Uh, supposedly, Leon Trotsky, Lenin's, um, 
you know, second in command will be commanding troops in the area. Just over 200 Americans will die in this expedition. Um, many more from the, the, the Spanish flu epidemic as well. And eventually, by the spring of 1919, it's pretty clear. This is well after the armistice. I mean, they're hashing out the Treaty of Versailles at this point. Um, that they are going to decide to get these troops the heck out of northern Russia. This has been a failed experiment with you know trying to use these troops to spark another revolution in Russia to get rid of the Bolsheviks. What the worst part of this is, the majority of the U.S. casualties actually come after the armistice, after the after the peace deal on the Western Front, which makes things kind of extra extra sad. That's you know, and and that's kind of a feature I think of the First World War is that, you know, the U.S. takes a huge amount of casualties the day in the morning of the armistice deal on November 11th crossing the Meuse River. We actually did that in another episode. There was congressional hearings about it, and here we have another case where the majority of people dying in northern Russia. Are after the is after the armistice has happened and we're almost you know wrapping up the treaty, um, kind of after and this is when it gets interesting too. There'll be numerous efforts and Nelson, to his credit, and I liked this a lot in the book. He spends a lot of time on the idea that there's all these bodies that were left behind. There's all these men who are left behind, and there'll be decade about a decade or so years after the war where they're trying to bring these these boys home. And uh, all he'll go through all the efforts of that, and it really is magnificent and beautiful. This is my favorite part of the book, despite um, despite kind of its inaccuracy. Many presidents down the road during the Cold War will contest that, you know, guys like Reagan and Kennedy, you know, all the, the U.S. troops have never fought the Red Army. It's never happened. And people like Khrushchev will remind them that the Soviets did fight you in 1919 and 1918 that they'll never forget that the the west that britain france and in the united states tried to drown their revolution before it could take hold they never forgot you know they still teach about this in russian schools that they didn't they didn't forget that you know that the us had troops on their soil and the british the french as well so you know even though the us would have to try to downplay you know some of this stuff it happened um, and it's a slice of U.S. history that not many people know about, which I find are the ones that make for good podcasts and that people will usually enjoy. So I hope you enjoy this and definitely check the book out. It's called The Polar Expedition by James Carl Nelson. Uh, it's about 300 pages long. It can get a bit confusing at times because there's so many different things going on. I encourage you just stick with the book. Just keep reading. Just keep going. Um, there's lots of harrowing tales, individual tales of soldiers performing enormous feats there. In, in northern Russia, and uh, you do feel some sadness for them, you know, fighting for a cause they don't fully understand that they probably should never have been engaged in or sent to, but it, a magnificent work of, uh, of memory by James Carl Nelson. So definitely check it out, The Polar Expedition. Uh, thank you for joining Holly History today. Stay safe in this windy day. We'll continue our shorts uh, next week, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. Thanks for listening.